Lord, you are um, an amazing God. You are an amazing sovereign who rules over all of of your world and and everything in in, our, in the human heart we know is is something that you have um, the ability to impact and and to change and we're so thankful that you've changed our hearts we know that uh, by our nature we we struggle against you but you have drawn us to yourself and compelled us um, in to be into your family compelled us to repent and and seek forgiveness and and we're so grateful for that and lord as we look into our study today and and see how you do work in in the human heart lord i ask that you would just uh, help us to grow in our understanding and grow in our our thankfulness to you and then also in our compassion for others in jesus name amen the question that i want wanted to kind of start with um is what makes the gospel believable? Because uh, the nature of our lesson today, we're going to be looking at um, uh, the end of the first missionary journey of Paul, the uh, the Council of Jerusalem, and then uh, the second missionary journey. We'll be covering a lot of ground, but one of the things that we're going to see through that is uh, the presentation of the gospel. We're going to see that that some receive it and some reject it. And, of course, it's been that way ever since. Um, uh, most of us uh, probably could give testimony to the fact that um, we were at one time rejectors, and then at some point we accepted, we believed. And, and so um, there's something uh, dynamic that happens within us that changes our minds. And <coughs> we're going to see... Lots of examples of that um, through the ministry of Paul. But what is it that makes the difference? Well, uh, our memory verse, and it kind of is a theme for, for some of our lessons here, is from 1 Corinthians one eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What makes the difference? What we're going to see is that it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is the one who makes the difference. The one, the Holy Spirit is the one who opens up our minds and helps us to understand, gives us understanding. Uh, you probably heard the saying that it, the sun, you know, is is the the element that that bakes the clay or it melts the wax, right? So that same sun can be shining down on on uh, the wax and makes it melt but it can uh, make the clay get hard. Uh, the, the gospel is in some ways like that. The gospel can be preached to a crowd of people and there'll be hearts out there that are ready to receive it and they'll just grab onto it. There'll be other hearts that it will actually make them turn further away from truth. Uh, that's the way human nature is. <coughs> And what is it that makes the gospel unacceptable to some? You know, we we live in a world with other people, right? And and those are people we care about in many cases. And and some of those people are not believers. And we desire them to hear and to understand like we have. But what makes the gospel unacceptable to some? And, and we all know because of our own experience that there's a natural stubbornness inside of us that we're born with 
that wants to protect our preconceptions and our traditions. And this is one of the things we're going to see a lot of in our lesson today. Protecting preconceptions and traditions. And those have to be stripped away for us to be humble before God. Whether we have a Damascus uh, road conversion uh, like Paul did or just a quiet submission of the heart, which is probably most of our experience. Um, most people don't have the road to Damascus conversion. Uh, some do, though. Some have some pretty dramatic stories. Um, but you could be someone like me that was growing up in church and as a 12 year old, finally the light turned on and uh, the Holy Spirit said now's the time and I said yes uh, there was no arguing that took place and that was as sure and as solid in my mind uh, that it happened um, I still remember it to this day many years later so um, it could be something simple a conversion as simple as that but in either case God is taking that heart of stone out and replacing it with a heart of flesh um, he is uh, changing in a dramatic way um, who we are. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel is about. We are uh, in this uh, quarter, in this uh, series called Living as Christians. And today, as I said, looking at Paul's second missionary journey, that's actually the second half of the lesson today. I do want to propose another question to you and to, to begin uh, the, the thinking on this. Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? Um, because people that you talk to um, that are not believers and you tell them, well, the Bible says so and so. And they say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? What will you tell them? And um, if you've never um, listened to him or, or seen his material, I really encourage you. You can um, go online and, and actually watch um, like a half hour, 40 minute sessions with Bodie Bauckham, who does. He has a series called The Ever Loving Truth. And. And he teaches, he talks in these sessions, mainly to college students, um, helping them to be able to face the culture. One of the things he does in this series is um, uh, draw parallels or, or try to tie together um, our experience as Christians today with the experience of uh, the early church in the first century. And he talks about the church in the first century living in a pre-Christian culture. Remember, they're in the, the empire of Rome. And Rome was not a Christian nation, right? It's not a Christian empire. Um, they're in a pre-Christian culture. And we are in a post-Christian culture. And as you know, because you're people who pay attention, um, as you know, um, the world has become becoming in in the western world more and more antagonistic toward christianity toward jesus christ toward the control of god over the affairs of mankind in fact uh man is becoming resentful of it and we're starting to see a lot of more pushback against uh the claims of christ 
And so, so Vodimachum makes a very good tie-in between the, the pre-Christian culture and the post-Christian culture of our time today. And so I really recommend it to you um, to, to, to watch it. Um, it's, it's a YouTube thing, so you don't have to pay for anything. Just watch it, and, and uh, they're, they're really good sessions. He is a really good speaker, and he has a really good mind, and he has a good way of explaining things. So I really encourage you for that. Uh, but he has a good um, answer for this. He, 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 he has a summary statement that he takes from Second Peter chapter 1, 16 to 21, that summarizes why we should believe the Bible. Peter, in that his second letter, makes an argument for, why, for, for their authority and, and for why their message is true. And so Vodibachum has this really good summary statement. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents. It was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place to fulfill specific prophecies, thus validating their claim that the book is divine rather than human in origin. This is a statement that actually is really good to memorize. I've been working on it. I'm kind of getting close to getting it right. Um, actually, when I typed it in, uh, I tried to do it from memory. Then I had to go back and make some corrections. But uh, this is a really good summary statement uh, for why we should believe the Bible. You see, it's not enough that we can believe the Bible. He explains this. It's not enough that we can we believe the Bible because... It works for us. It changed my life. Um, that's a that's a good answer, and it's and it's true, right? It's true for us. But you know what? There are other religious books that have worked for people that have changed their life. And he tells the story in talking about this of Malcolm X, how Malcolm X was a troubled teen and was in prison, and someone came to him and brought the Koran, and it changed his life. Um, so that answer, um, is not enough. Um, it also is not enough. And, and again, he's talking to college students, uh, in this primarily, but to say, well, I, this is what I was raised with, you know, and this is, this is what I know. And so that's why I believe it. Um, because people are raised with all kinds of things. And just because we're raised with something shouldn't be what we stick with. In fact, it's good for every generation to challenge their beliefs. Why do you believe what you believe? And so, um, and in fact, as a college student, when you're sitting in class and someone, ch- and a professor challenges your belief, um, you better have more than, that's what mom and dad taught me um, as an answer. But the reality is the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. And in fact, if you do the research, you find that it has more historical uh, validation than any other ancient book. It's amazing how much historical validation it has. Uh, it's written by the eyewitnesses. When you're talking about the, the events of, of Christ, the life of Christ and what he did, there were eyewitnesses that wrote it down in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That's corroboration. And so these eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place to fulfill specific prophecies. 
thus validating their claim that the book is divine rather than human in origin. So uh, this is why we believe the Bible. And the reason why I bring this up this morning is because when we read, and we're going to go back a little bit through uh, some of from last week, the message of Paul uh, that he preached in um, Antioch, Pisidia. And when you read that message, you will find that Paul is really doing that very thing. And we'll be uh, going through the, the general outline to, to show how he does that, how he shows that there are eyewitnesses that, that fulfill specific prophecies and that there is a plan that, that God has followed to make it so. Um, but this is um, the reason why we should be believing the Bible. And so we go into Paul's sermon at Antioch Pisidia, and this is something that that Mike got into a little bit last week. And so we just want to, uh, as review, pick it up here and, uh, and then carry our way through uh, the end of the second journey, uh, his missionary journey. We see, uh, well, let me talk a little bit about, about Antioch Pisidia. We were, Paul and Barnabas get to Antioch um, after they had, in the second part of their first missionary journey together uh, they uh, had been in the island of Cyprus sailed um, across part of the Mediterranean Sea get to the shores of the northern part there and then make their way up into higher elevations to Antioch which they get to Antioch and um, they, the first place they go as was generally the, the practice of Paul in, as we read his, his missionary journeys, uh, they go to the synagogue first. There's a substantial Jewish population there, and so they have a synagogue. And they get to the synagogue, and as is the practice in the synagogue, they read from the Torah, and then they read from um, a prophet. And after that, it's customary for there to be an address. Uh, some kind of a sermon or um, some sort of a, um, a speech that, that talks about what was read or kind of fits into the context of what they had read. That's the practice in the synagogue. And so uh, as the Holy Spirit would move things, um, they see these two Jewish men come in who are strangers um, and yet they seem to be reverent and um, participating in, in what is going on. And so they call upon one of them to to speak, to address the congregation um, in regards to uh, what, what had been read. And Paul takes that opportunity to then um, give this uh, sermon that he does. And, and so the sermon is is written down. And it's in, uh, I think it's chapter 13. Yes, chapter 13. And so um, we, we're not going to go back through and read it, but I just want to get some highlights of, of what he, he does. And, and Paul, and you, will, and you see this in, in various addresses. So you see it when Stephen gave his apologetic. We see it in various addresses. It's customary it seems 
<coughs> excuse me, to to tie the history of Israel um, together, especially if you're a stranger, if you're not connected. It, it's a way of of identifying and showing that that you understand that you're part of that of of what has gone on with the history of Israel. And so Paul goes through and gives a, just a brief account of the history of Israel and what God has done through this nation. So uh, he talks about God taking them from Egypt and, and making them into a nation, that it is a, a purpose of God to do this. He talks about God giving them a land. He talks about God giving them a king. And he first he talks about Saul, but then Saul was rejected. And so then David was made a king. And so he talks about uh, all that um, and does give specificity to it. Then, according to promise, God gives them a savior who is descended from that king. And so he he takes it through there because his 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 uh, goal is to get to Jesus Christ. And so he goes through all this history to get to Jesus Christ. And um, and so. That's that's what he gives to them in his sermon, the first part of it. Then he gets to this this middle part of the sermon and he says this brethren, sons of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So there are two groups of people that are in the synagogue listening. There are the Jews and there are the God fearers. And it, it describes that actually at the beginning of the chapter or of the of the sermon that who is there so so paul is addressing both of these these are both groups of people who have reverence for these scriptures and for this story but here's what he goes on to say to us the message of this salvation has been sent for those who live in jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every sabbath fulfilled these by condemning him this is an amazing statement especially verse 27 describing how that you know he's over in antioch which is a great distance now from jerusalem but they are all familiar with jerusalem and what's going on there the politics and the whole thing and so what he's he's describing to them is the event that took place when jesus was crucified that they recognize neither him who is a descendant of David, um, according to the promise, uh, recognize neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. That should be something that just pokes them in the eye in a way and, and makes them say, okay, yeah, we read these every Sabbath, but what does it really mean to us? Are we really listening and so Paul is is trying to provoke their thinking and uh, what but then he goes on to say they fulfilled those prophets by condemning him. And so uh, he again, very similar to what Peter said, remember in, in uh, Acts chapter two in, in his his uh, uh, sermon before everyone who in, where he talks about how that it was the will of God that this all happened. And so uh, he goes on then to describe in this sermon that the Savior was rejected and crucified. And then uh, he says that God raised him from the dead according to specific promises. And then he appeared unto witnesses. So Paul is just laying it out 
that this is what happened, that this is all according to the plan of God. And so Paul, what Paul is doing in his sermon here is he's, he's describing the plan of God using Israel and that this is all about bringing a, a savior into the world to bring forgiveness of sins. And again, he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. So this is something that's for the world, for the nations of the world. And so uh, what Paul is saying, now I'm here to give you the message that the, of a complete story, that this is the story of redemption that has been completed by God. And then he closes his sermon basically by saying, believed or be judged. And you can read it's, it's pretty strong language at the end there. And he, he again quotes prophets about that as well, uh, that you can believe or be just in, you know, in so many words, the it's turn or burn. Right. Um, he's very blunt about that. Um, so then uh, what happens after that? Well, the uh, there's a response and the, the initial response by everyone is uh, both Jews and Gentiles is amazement. And uh, they want to hear more. And so they stay another week and and uh, more is said. But by then <coughs> that the response becomes divided. There are people, mostly Gentiles, some Jews who who uh, uh, receive the message with gladness and and uh, they they uh, receive uh, th- this salvation that is offered. But there are others in mostly in the Jewish community who get really upset about it because this is going to challenge everything that they hold dear um, because they're holding the wrong things dear. But that's the way we are as human beings. We, we get things out of, out of whack in what we value. And so uh, there then is an uprising against them and uh, yet they're able to establish a group of believers there, but they end up uh, <coughs> needing to move on. And so it, last week, uh, Mike had this, this map up there. And so you see uh, they were at Antioch and then they go to Iconium. And uh, at Iconium, there was a large number of Jews and Gentiles who believed. Um, but then they had to leave under threat of stoning. So they were there long enough to... Uh, uh, persuade people to give them the gospel. And, and there were people who did believe they were able to, to get a, a group of, of believers together started as a, a small church. Yet they, they left under threat of stoning. So then they went to Lystra and uh, there a lame man is healed. A man who had been lame since birth and a miracle takes place. And that's the place where uh, Lystra, there's a temple uh, to two uh, Roman gods, actually Greek deities, uh, Zeus and and Hermes, I think it was, and uh, or Jupiter and Mercury. I forget who that. Not Mercury. Anyway, these two Roman gods, and they were they were saying that they must have come down to Earth because this layman was healed. And so, once Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening. They went out and, and said, no, 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 we're not, we're not gods. We're men just like you. Um, and so they were able to, to persuade them that they, that they were not, um, they were not gods. 
but, um, and this is going to be also a pattern that happens throughout Paul's ministry. Uh, there were Jews who, who uh, had been rejecting the message from Antioch and, and from Iconium who traveled to Lystra following behind. And by the time they get there, they begin, they create this big uprising and end up, Paul ends up being stoned and drug out of the city and left for dead. So that happens in Lystra. Uh, uh, sometime later, he gets up and, and uh, with his, his group, his, his friends, and they take, he gets back into the city. The next day, they leave for Derby, And they get to Derby. They don't bet on any horses. Uh, there's no horse racing. Uh, they make many disciples, it says. And then they return back and so you see the the lines going back around they return back to lystra to iconium and to antioch uh as they go they're strengthening the brethren um as as they go on the way and so um and and also appointing elders and so they're really trying to get these churches established which they do um they get them established and (coughs) then they're working going to work their way back home and so then paul and barnabas uh, end up uh, coming back down and, and making their way back to Antioch to give their report. And so they've left Antioch and, and done this, this journey. Now they're going back with this, this great report of, of seeing many converts, churches established in these different towns. And uh, so uh, they're, the church is really rejoicing in what they have done. They get to Antioch, however, and this is Antioch in Syria, uh, where their home and sending church is. And there begins to arise a debate um, over circumcision. And what has happened is that there's a group of, of men in Jerusalem who are Pharisees, converted Pharisees, but still really holding to the traditions of Phariseeism. Of, of holding on to mosaic uh, laws and the covenants and 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 in particular circumcision circumcision is 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 a big deal it's a sign of the covenant to israel and so this debate arises in antioch over circumcision requirements for gentile believers and antioch is is kind of a mix it's a mix of jews and gentiles and so it's a big concern for them and it's also going to be a big concern for these new believers that uh, have become uh, Christians from this missionary journey that has just taken place. And uh, so what happens is at the end of or at the beginning of verse 15 or chapter 15, I mean, it, sa- it describes the situation. It says some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So we're going to have the the council, the Jerusalem council. And this is... A really important 
uh, event that takes place here. And so I didn't want to pass it by because it really plays into the rest of, of Paul's ministry. The issue, um, as we said, is going to be whether Gentile believers must submit to the law of Moses, including circumcision. And let's also read verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So this is going to be the issue that they're going to discuss and, and try to come to some kind of conclusion. Now, remember, Jerusalem in Jerusalem, there's still most of the apostles and, and there's elders there. So it's belie- it, is, <coughs> it is viewed, this, this church in Jerusalem, to be an authority figure for Christianity still. They don't have a written New Testament that's going to give them the guidelines. That's what comes out of all this. We, we get the, that later. Uh, so this is how God is going to um, to direct them for the future in this way. So they're going to deal with this issue. And so it begins with Peter's argument. After there was much debate, Peter stands up and gives his experience um, with Cornelius. He begins to relate it and talks about it. And so uh, I want us to pick it up in verse. Um, let's see. Verse 8, actually, what he has to say. He says, And God, who knows the heart, and testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which, was, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So Peter makes his declaration, his statement. Following that, James, who is has become by this time the kind of the, the leader of this whole whole thing. James, who's not one of the original um, 12 disciples, James, the brother of Christ, um, the older, the next youngest, probably, because he's always in in the names of the brothers. He's always listed first. But James, um, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him and he became, instead of a skeptic, a true believer and and uh, became very highly regarded in the church of Jerusalem because of his heart, because of of his knowledge in his passion, his zeal, his wisdom. And so uh, James is, is really looked to as being an authority figure, much like the rest of the, the apostles are. So James stands up and he gives some very, very wise counsel. And we'll read what he has to say, beginning in verse 19. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but they, but that they, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. 
And after he makes a statement, it seems pretty much everybody agrees. Okay, in this council, yeah, that's, that's how we should go. And so uh, what they end up doing is codifying it. They codify the decision, which means they just wrote it down. And uh, they uh, sent a letter, prepared a letter for to be sent out to uh, Antioch and to all the other churches um, that have Gentile believers in it. And this was to to settle this dispute. And it did to a large extent, as we will see um, the, when the letter is taken back by Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, there was great rejoicing, great clarity there, and uh, a, a great feeling of relief that, uh, that we don't have to go through all of these things. We'll be talking a little bit more about that later. I think it's noteworthy uh, here, and I, I do want to kind of do a sidebar on Paul here, that it's noteworthy that it is Paul the formerly intense Pharisee who so argues against imposing mosaic restrictions on the Gentiles. Remember who Paul is. Paul is a a Pharisee who is zealous for the law. Paul is, um, as he describes himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew of Hebrews means that he, he is someone who takes his Jewish tradition so seriously and this, I'm sure, is part of his upbringing. His parents probably raised him in this. But it means that he's, he doesn't speak Aramaic in his, in, in his language. And he doesn't rely upon the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament scriptures. He, he reads and understands Hebrew. He speaks Hebrew. And in fact, he's, uh, I, as I read, he's, he, I think he's the only one who, when he quotes from the Old Testament... In his writings, he's he's translating it directly himself into Greek. They they can tell from his from what he's writing that he's he's not borrowing from the Septuagint. Um, he understands Hebrew, and, and and this this is something that's a powerful part of who he is. And as we talked about back when we were going through the stoning of Stephen and Paul and Saul of Tarsus, his role in all of that. He's one of those that is so zealous for the law and protective of the, of the customs and, and the ceremonies of the temple that, that he's willing to kill people for that. I mean, he's willing to see them arrested and done away with because he believes that they're violating the holiness of God. He's that zealous for it. This is something that's, that's a big deal to him. And now we see him as the converted man that he's been um, arrested by Jesus and changed, and he sees it completely differently. Uh, he, he, and he's arguing on the other side. And I found a really a good quote that describes this um, from Frank Goodwin in the Harmony of the Life of St. Paul. He says, A severe training as a Pharisee does not seem the most promising preparation for the future apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul's weakness was his strength. Then he quotes another person. We may safely say that if Saul had been less of a Jew, Paul the apostle, apostle would have been less bold. God did not choose a heathen to be a, the apostle to the heathen, for he might have been ensnared by the traditions of Judaism. On the contrary, God chose a Pharisee. And 
But this Pharisee had the most complete experience of the emptiness of the external ceremonies and the crushing yoke of the law. He would never look back. In, in, as I w- had been pondering this, this, this man and in, in, you know, why he's now so strongly arguing against the traditions you know, being imposed upon the Gentiles, uh, this is one of the things that, that kept coming to my mind. Is this is a man who's experienced what it means to try to keep the law. If it, as he's, he described himself in Philippians, he did it without reproach. He kept the whole law. There was no one who could come and say to him, uh, you missed one here, you missed one there. No, he was, he was meticulous about it. And yet he felt the emptiness of it. And it reminds me a little bit of, of the experience of Martin Luther. Uh, if, you, if you remember his story that prior to becoming a Christian, he's this monk and he's, he's struggling with his sin and with his emptiness before God and trying so hard and always coming up short. It's never enough and it never feels like enough until he understands that the just shall live by faith. That it's faith that makes the difference. It's the grace of God. It's not our works. It's not our being good. It's, it's the grace of God. And so it's, it's that transition that takes place. And Paul has, has experienced that. And he then has experienced the freedom um, that comes from, uh, from not being under that weight of the law. And so he, there's no way he wants to impose that upon these new believers, upon these Gentile Christians. This is something that, that is not part of salvation. Um, he understands that it's not by works of righteousness, but it's by grace that we're saved, as he writes to the Ephesian church later. So Paul and Barnabas go back up to Antioch, and then Paul wants to um, go out on another uh, missionary journey, and he wants to go back to the churches where they had been and and uh, talk to them again. And Paul and Barnabas says, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul says, eh, no, he's not coming with us. And so they have this big dispute. And so uh, they end up dividing. Barnabas takes John Mark back to Cyprus. Cyprus is Barnabas's home territory. That's where Barnabas is from. And Paul takes Silas to Galatia. Interestingly, as we look at the map, you'll see that uh, Tarsus is right on the way um, to there. So, so the Galatia area is actually pretty close to <coughs> to Paul's growing up territory, and so that's what they end up doing. They divide and they go on. So, as we see, this is the second missionary journey, and um, they pick, they start off with Antioch. They go through Tarsus, and they go to Derby. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And uh, then they end up uh, going over to Troas. And so we'll be talking about that in, in a bit. So they strengthen the churches of Galatia and they deliver the letter. Um, they go to Galatia. Now there are some who, who um, some really good commentar- commentators who believe that the, the letter to the Galatian churches was written uh, prior to uh, their, the Council of Jerusalem. 
there are others who say it was written after, um, and good arguments on both sides. They're both compelling arguments. Um, in any case, uh, the, this issue was already an issue. It's a festering issue of how much of the law should be imposed upon the Gentile believers. And so they deliver the letter and be, they're able to set it at ease. And the, the, the letter, one of the things that the letter says is these people who have gone up to tell you otherwise, they're not, they weren't sent from us. We didn't tell them to go do this. They're on their own. And so um, this letter that comes from the Jerusalem church it, is a real um, weight lifter uh, for them. They add a proby. Um, I'm an NCIS fan, so. Um, they add a proby. Timothy of Lystra. And so they uh, pick him up. He was converted in that first trip through, it's believed. And so now, as a young man, and, and pretty well known young man in the, in the general area, uh, <coughs> uh, and he's known for his faith. He, he's actually got a really, really positive. Uh, testimony uh, and, and reputation amongst the, ple- the people there. And so they pick him up and um, take him with us. And one of the things that this, this jumps out to me is that the issue that Paul had with John Mark was not because of his youth. And Paul wasn't against training young men. We see him, him doing, he did, he did it with Titus and Timothy. There were others that he, he liked to bring alongside and, and to disciple he wasn't against the, the training and that, that whole thing. Uh, Paul had, had lost confidence in John Mark and, and, and didn't believe that he was going to, to have the durability to, to end through it. We do know, of course, and it's been brought up, um, Pastor Carlos talked about this in his sermon a few weeks ago. John Mark became valuable to him um, later on. And, and we see this in his uh, letter, second letter to Timothy. Um, of of the value that John Mark was to him. But at this point uh, in the ministry, uh, Paul wasn't seeing it. Barnabas, thankfully, was. And so God used Barnabas to continue to develop John Mark. And John Mark ended up being the writer, of one of the Gospels, and, and uh, being a, a very effective um, minister of the Gospel uh, for Christ. Here, though, Paul adds Timothy and... Uh, does something that's crazy. Timothy gets circumcised. Paul has just fought this battle and won over circumcision. And yet Timothy, Paul has Timothy get circumcised. Um, and so this is, it's an interesting situation. Timothy's mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. And so when he was born, he was not circumcised. <coughs> but he was known to all of the, the people in the region as being part Jewish. And for the sake of Timothy's effectiveness as a minister of the gospel, <clears throat> Paul had him circumcised. Remember, Paul says in one of his letters to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. And so what Paul's issue here is effectiveness of ministry and to be an effective minister i need to do what it takes to to get there i'm not going to let something like this stand in the way 
And Paul wanted Timothy to be an effective minister to both Jewish and, and Gentile believers, or Jewish and Gentile unbelievers. He, wanted, he didn't want that to be an issue. And so, um, as one commentator says, they did a minor surgery. Yeah, okay, so anyway, um, Timothy gets circumcised. And uh, then, as, as we said, they go on to Troas because they want to go to Asia, which is actually what we call Asia Minor. Um, is the area down toward the coast. They want to go there, and the Holy Spirit doesn't let them go. And then they want to go up to, to Bithynia, and it's, which is a region up in the north, and the Holy Spirit won't let them go there either. We don't know. We're not told how that was. Uh, we do know when we get to Troas, Paul had a vision to go to Macedonia. But there's nothing stated about a vision. There's nothing stated about anything, uh, whether, whether it was circumstances, uh, whether it was passport issues. I'm just kidding. Uh, we don't know uh, what it was, but for some reason he was not um, led to go. They were not led to go. And so they're at Troas, and um, so they end up going, getting this call. Now, it's at Troas that they pick up Luke. Luke seems joins them there. It's believed he's joined. It doesn't say that specifically. It just, as they're there, um, the third-person account that, that Luke later writes changes to first-person. So it's instead of they are going here and there, and it's now we are going to go. And so, so that happens <coughs> at Troas. That's where the Macedonian vision comes to come over and help us. And so they go over, they go to Philippi. And then they work their way to Thessalonica, to Berea. And uh, then Paul has to go down to Athens. So we're going to deal with those fairly quickly. Um, so the spirit leads the team, including Luke, to Macedonia. The church is established in Philippi. Now, Philippi, um, that's where the very first convert is a woman down by the river, riverside. Okay. So he goes down there and, uh, there's a group of people praying. Now, Philippi had no synagogue because in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men. Uh, that were willing to do to put together the synagogue. So apparently they didn't have that have that many there. And so then the custom was for the for the on the Sabbath was for the Jewish people to go to uh, a river, the side of a river, and they would have a, a, a prayer time there. So Paul goes down to the, the side of the river and there's a group of people there. And one of the people that he meets <coughs> and who listens to his message is a woman named Lydia. Who's from Asia? Thyatira. So it's interesting. The first convert in um, Europe is from Asia. The place where he wanted to go, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. God wanted him to go to Philippi first. Uh, They would go to Asia in the next journey. Uh, But this is where he wanted to go. And so Lydia becomes a first believer. And uh, then that's also uh, where... Uh, the the jailer is converted because there's trouble with the pagans. There's not enough Jews there to cause trouble, but there's enough pagans there to cause trouble. 
And what happens is that's, that's where the, the young lady who's, who's demon-possessed is following them around and, and uh, saying that these are from the Most High God. And after a while, Paul has had enough of it, and he casts out the demon and destroys the, uh, the commercial value to, to the men who, who own her. And, and so they um, go to the authorities and say that these men are causing trouble with our culture. And uh, so Paul and Silas are arrested, thrown in jail, and you know the story. Uh, the, the jailer is converted, and <laughs> so between Lydia and the jailer, we have the beginnings of this new church. This church in Philippi becomes one of his uh, most devoted uh, supporters, as we read in, in the, his letter to the Philippians. Now, this is a, becomes an, an amazing and a good church, good, solid church. Uh, but uh, because of the, the, the beating and the being thrown in prison, they get out of prison, and Paul says, you did all this, and we're Roman citizens. Both he and Silas were Roman citizens, and you gave us no trial. You, gave, you just, you just uh, did this to us, and... and and uh, the authorities of the city asked them to leave. And so after <clears throat> a short time, they did leave. And they went on to Thessalonica. There, they had trouble with the Jews. There, there was a synagogue. And so they go in and they reason in the synagogue. And there are converts there. There are people, both God-fearers who are Gentiles and Jewish people who do believe. Uh, but... Um, they end up having all kinds of trouble and they, they have to leave. So they go on to Berea. And Berea has a more noble response. Remember the, the, the people in the synagogue, they hear the teaching, they hear Paul's message, and they go back and search the scriptures. They don't just react. They don't just have this, um, this wall that they put up automatically, they say, well, wait a minute, let's go back and see what the prophet said. And they go back and they receive it. They, they, uh, they receive the message. They have a much better response. However, the Jews from Thessalonica who didn't like them traveled to Berea and caused trouble, such trouble that, um, that Paul has to leave. Uh, it's just it's creating too many problems for him being there. And that's sort of how some people are, you know, have issues, will travel. And so that's what happens with Berea. So Paul goes alone to Athens. And as, uh, as Pastor Carlos's uh, sermon, uh, I think it's three weeks ago, uh, went through his, his uh, time in Athens. Um, we won't spend <coughs> much time there. But after Athens, he goes to Corinth. And um, at Corinth, he spends, ends up spending a year and a half. And that's where his team rejoins him. And uh, so we see that all coming back together. It's also where Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. Now, I like to think of them as having a last name, the last name Coleman. Um, that's kind of the last name I've given to them, Quill and Priscilla Coleman, because they are tent makers. You, you see, you do, I don't know if you get it. Um, I'm sure that company has been around a long time. 
And so, uh, and Paul ends up working with them, at least at the beginning when he first meets them, because uh, he also is by trade a tent maker um, or leather worker, as, as some have, have put it. Um, and tents, by the way, just, just for an aside, were not what they lived in. So they didn't make tents to live in. They made tents to travel with because they didn't have Holiday Inn, you know, all along the travel routes. And so if you travel, um, you know, you're going to need something to stay in along the ways until you get to another city or get to your destination. And so maybe their last name was Winnebago, but I don't know. I still like Coleman. Um they get in in Corinth is is a very different situation. Corinth um, is a different kind of city, um, as you probably know. It's it's a very pagan city, um, and so while they're they're there, Paul has really been given an open door. In fact, he his is visited by Christ in a vision and told that he will not suffer any um, physical issues here in, in, in Corinth that, that uh, God has a plan for him. And so that's why they end up staying there for a year and a half. They do great ministry there. Uh, it's believed that that's where he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, writing back to the church in Thessalonica because he didn't get to spend much time there. There were already issues that when... Um, when Timothy and Luke came back down to meet him in Corinth, they're, they're bringing him <coughs> stories of, of some, some issues there. So Paul fires off first Thessalonians and then he has to, uh, in a few months, send a second letter to correct some of the, the overcorrections that had happened from his first letter. And so that, uh, is what is going on there, but it's an interesting, um, thing too is, is, uh, the person Gallio, who seems to be over the, the whole province or region, um, is approached by the Jews. They decided to take a different approach here in Corinth than what he had had before. They decided to go to the authorities. And uh, so they're going to go to the Roman uh, authority. Now, Gallio is, is a significant person. He's a brother of Seneca. Uh, the Roman philosopher who was very well known in Rome and very influential. His father, was, uh, who's also named Seneca, was, was a very influential in Roman government. So Gallio is a, a person who, who carried a lot of weight. And um, any decision that he would make would probably have ramifications for the rest of the empire because it would, it would create precedence. And so uh, they come, the Jewish people come with this, this argument that Paul is, is starting a new religion. And, um, and that's against the law. That they were allowed to keep their religions, and so it was still legal to be Jewish. To have, to, Judaism was a legal religion because it existed before the empire. But there were, it was not allowed for there to be new religions. So their argument was that Christianity was a new religion. Gallio uh, didn't see it that way. And I, I, again, I see the hand of God in that. But uh, Gallio said, no, 
Uh, this is the same old thing. These are just internal arguments within your religion. Don't bother me with this. And he basically slammed the door on the Jewish re- resistance. The synagogue leader, who was a new synagogue leader because the old one had converted to Christianity, had become a, one of the converts there. This new guy ends up getting beaten by the, the, uh, the, the soldiers and the other people around. Um, on the way out, and it pretty much shuts the door on Jewish resistance in the city of Corinth. And so for this this period of time that they're there, they have really a lot of freedom and they're able to really do good ministry in Corinth. On the way back, there's a brief stop at Ephesus. And we know Ephesus becomes a very uh, strong church in the first century, but it doesn't start here. It's just Paul barely plants a seed. He goes to the synagogue. He uh, has one meeting. They say, come back next week. And Paul says, I can't. Got to go. And so uh, he says, I'll, I'll try to come back on, an, on another trip. And he ends up doing that, in, as we'll see next week in the third missionary journey. Um, then he goes, they, Paul and Silas end up going back, reporting to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. And, uh, and, and telling what the, the, of the great things that God has done in their journey. So what do we take away from this? I think there's, there's uh, three things that uh, I think I'd like, us, I'd like us to see out of this, this lesson today. Um, first of all, that, that Paul, um, in his message, is bringing real clarity as to what the gospel is about. The gospel is about faith. It's not about the works of keeping the law. And Paul makes this, this very clear uh, in his teaching ministry to the Gentiles and also in, in the, the letters later that he wrote, particularly Galatians, he's arguing this issue. And so one of the statements he makes in Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And so... Chapter 2, verse 21, gives that directive. Then in chapter 3, he says, verse 5, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so uh, Paul is, is making a point that it's not the works of the law. And, and he knows that because the works of the law have been there for generations. And they haven't had what they have now. And that is the true salvation, the true um, forgiveness of sins. And and that's what we need, isn't it? The next thing is that Paul clearly viewed evangelistic ministry as a team sport. Mike's been talking about that a lot. The the evangelism is a team sport. And Paul saw it that way, involving those with him personally personally. So he, he went out as a team. He wasn't just by himself. Um, as well as submitting to his home church in Antioch. He, he was always going back and reporting to them. And the, also the apostolic leadership in Jerusalem. Those were really important values that he had and what he demonstrates. And this really is uh, a, a big part of the model of present day uh, missions activities and evangelistic efforts in the world. This is what the, the uh, Christian church tries to do even today is this is not we don't just send out lone rangers to, to do their kind of 
do it on their own. No, it's a, it's a team effort. It's, it's, it's people working together. Uh, not everybody, as Paul talks about, not everybody is the mouthpiece, right? But God gifts some people to be that. But it's, it's everybody else working together, making it happen. And so it is a team effort. The third thing is that uh, his gospel message was that there were supernatural events that took place to fulfill specific prophecies before eyewitnesses. These events mean that there is a Savior who will provide forgiveness of sins for those who believe. That this isn't just something that we made up and, you know, we want, we want to start a new religion and, and uh, build new universities and have, you know, great vacation plans and all this. No, they're, they're, this is... This is eternal. This is real. This is from God. And this is all out of his plan from the beginning. God has ordained that this is how these events should take place. And so his gospel message was, was really in that flavor. And as we read his, his, uh, his testimony, we, we can read it later in Acts when he's before Felix and Festus. And he's talking about what God has done. It's always the same. It's very consistent. Uh, that, that this, this is their message, and this is really our message as well, um, that, that God has in a supernatural way intervened in the affairs and the history of mankind to provide salvation, to provide redemption. And so that is, is what our gospel is based upon. And so, again, our, our verse for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the clarity of your word and what you uh, have done to, to bring us to yourself. Thank you for your spirit that uh, has given to us your word, but also opens up our minds to be able to, to read it, to understand it, and to take it in. And then you change us. You continue to transform our lives. Just thank you for your patience, your kindness with us. And, and may we, as we uh, live out our lives, even this week, um, use these things that we have seen today to be a blessing to others and to fulfill what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.